Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so the organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Age Institute colleague Ed Kless. Today's show, folks, we are talking about best best books of 2020. Hey, Ed, how's it going? I got a complaint, Ron. Okay, go ahead. Yep, I got a complaint. We we have had guests on for so many consecutive weeks and shows that that I'm used to having 15 minute breaks twice during our show, and I'm gonna call my union rep. I know. I gotta work. I gotta work the full hour today. Your scale <laughs> needs to change, right? For this. Uh, yes. You need the minimum wage, Ed. You need minimum wage. That's what it is. <laughs> not, not getting minimum wage, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is uh, this will be fun to talk about something other than GameStop. Have you noticed that every <laughs> every podcast has something on this? Jeez, I'm just over it. Yeah, pretty sure. You know the the podcasts on on every subject you know science is talking about this because there's a there's a, a mathematical component to this so everybody's just going absolutely nuts they're trying to figure out their way their angle as to why they should talk about GameStop but I'm glad we're not talking about it let's move on yeah for sure uh, I'm I'm uh, to borrow a line from William F Buckley I'm standing athwart history yelling GameStop <laughs> there you um, go <clears throat> okay so best books Here's, here's a great line from Ray Bradbury, the sci-fi writer. Sure. You don't have to get people to burn books to destroy a culture. Just get people to stop reading them. Amen. That's true. I love that. You know, I just read something about him reading another book this year. Uh, he didn't fly or drive, and he lived in L.A., rode his bike all over. When he did have to go, like deliver a talk or something, he took the train I did not know, Ed, that Bradbury helped the Disney Imagineers develop the story concept for space, Spaceship Earth, the geodesic sphere at uh, Epcot. And they had he was in New Orleans at the time when that opened, when Epcot opened on uh, October 1st, 1982. And they're trying to figure out how are we going to get this guy to Orlando because he doesn't drive. They had to send a dr- car and a driver. He, he'll, he'll drive in the car. He just won't drive it. Okay. And they drove him the 600 miles to Orlando uh, for the opening of Epcot. And this was the guy, he went to the LA city council multiple times to lobby for the monorail system being used for the city's transit system. And he once asked Walt Disney, he, he says, please, Walt, you got to run for mayor of LA. And, and that's when Walt said, why should I run for mayor when I'm already king of Disneyland? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one more interesting thing that I did not know, just because I was involved, I was reading this book that talked about this. When Epcot opened October 1st, 1982, I did not know this. They had two Concords land simultaneously at Orlando Airport, one from Air France and one from British Airways to celebrate their pavilions opening at Epcot, you know, the World Showcase. 
Oh, no, I did not know that. They landed within two seconds of each other, and then they touched, almost touched nose to nose when they parked. It was really cool, really cool ceremony. That was like a worldwide event. So, yeah, but there was never regular Concord service to Orlando that I know of. I mean, it was only New York and London, right? Pretty yeah, sure. and they might have they might have to get a special waiver uh, yeah. to be able to land the thing there because it was it was uh, it was loud. I was li- living on Long Island and when the Concorde came in. You knew it. I mean, even twenty miles out from the airport. Hell yeah! Oh yeah, yeah. It used to rattle people's windows, break them. Yeah, that's why they they outlawed it in a lot of places. But uh, I since Disney owns Orlando, you know, they can do whatever they want, right? They're their own city, basically. True. Uh, anyway. So, Ed, I'm cheating here today. I guess we're going to talk about our five best books that we read. In 2020, correct. In that's 2020. that's the only parameter, too, that we must have read them in 2020. Right. And I'm cheating because I'm not <laughs> including in my list the people who we interviewed. Yeah, see, I'm che- I'm not going to cheat because I have definitely one that it, we did interview. Okay, fair so, enough. No, that's just that's just the way for me to sneak 10 in on you. I see. Okay. That's all. Um, so I'm going to try and get through two in this segment. Um, but let me give you two that we interviewed for the author that we interviewed. They happen to be the same author. Okay. And it was Peter Robinson. So episode 320, and I got a chance to ask him about both of these books. The first one was How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life. And, of course, the second one, Snapshots from Hell him earning his MBA at Stanford, which is a rollicking read that if you've got any interest in getting an MBA or if you have an MBA, you'll love that book. It's, it's amazing. It's really well done. And is it a very long book, Ron? Uh, 200 and something pages. Okay. So it's, yeah. 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 He takes you through some details, Um, you know, meeting his, his wife, they were, girlfriend, boyfriend at the time and all of that, but just all the classes and all the professors and just what they studied and how it didn't, how it didn't have any uh, bearing on reality. I mean, he was talking about being in one course and the guys going on about market failure, market failure, and how do we correct it? You know, we need to correct it this way and that way. And Peter at the end of the class raises his hand and says, um, I worked in government. What about government failure? <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the professor was like stumped. You know, so <laughs> that doesn't happen. Governments don't fail. Government failure. What are you talking about? Um, okay, so here so, we go. Um, here's my number five book. Okay, they're both, they're both wrong. A policy guide for America's frustrated independent thinkers by John John Tamney. Phenomenal book because he bashes both the left and the right. Yes, basically from an economic perspective. And I love what he wrote in his foreword. He said, just because an idea appeals to a lot of people doesn't mean it's wrong. But that's a good working theory. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes on to recount all these different policies that, you know, you would think we have all this agreement on. And and he just destroys them from both sides. Like, for instance, the government deficit. No, it's going to collapse us and all of this. He's like, if that was true, why is the interest rate on these bonds so low? You know, yeah. the free marketers love, love price signals and if it's really risky and we're going to collapse, then why isn't this happening? And he takes on immigration. He bashes both sides on immigration. Um, just, it's really well done. And he's just got a way about him 
to explain complex economic issues in a way that most people can grasp. So I really enjoyed that book. Yeah. Now, most of his stuff, because I, I, I've read a lot of articles by him, it appears in Real, is it Real Clear Politics? I think that's where he originally writes. I know that I also pick up some of them in AERI, but yeah. I think it's Real Clear Politics is originally right. where his, his sourced on that. Is this, a, is this a book book or is this a, it's, is a this a, it's not a compendium of, of nope. pieces? It, okay. came out, it came out in 2019. It, it does have an arc that runs through it and it's, it's really, really well done. Um, you know, one thing he says about he takes when he takes on climate change, he, he says, you know, you would expect to see if Miami's going to go underwater, you would expect to see this embedded in the prices of real estate, which seems absolutely sky high. And if it really is going to cause more hurricanes and more for, forceful hurricanes and more losses, then you would expect to see that insurance um, go up. And he quotes Warren Buffett from one of his uh, shareholder meetings talking about, no, we don't see any additional losses from this from an insurance perspective. And Buffett should know because if he's wrong, he'll pay for it. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely correct. Well, and I'm going to jump in here, Ron, because this is a great example of serendipity. My number five book is called Apocalypse Never. Uh, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Yep. by Michael Schellenberger. Excellent. And just a, a super book. He is he is not a climate denier. In fact, he is a, a person who very very much believes in global warming and that that we there's something that needs to be done. He just is, objects to the alarmism piece of it and he just thinks that that we're doing far more harm than good by scaring the crap out of people. Uh, in fact, one of the, the the highlights from the book that I wrote is that a national survey found that one in five British children is having nightmares about climate change yeah. and how horrible th th this is. Uh, you know, and that we ha this has to be akin to what you and I grew up with in the 80s. If you remember, we were scared crapless of nuclear weapons. Yeah. And, you know, he even makes this point. In fact, one of the chapters is, is about that in thorium reactors that, that we have to seriously look at nuclear power if if we want to do anything about climate change. That that has to be on the table, has to be something that we look at in no uncertain terms. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Yep. I You know, I've heard him on many different podcasts talk about that book in depth and it sounds like a great book. I read kind of a the companion book by Bjorn Lomberg. Mm -hmm. um, I forget the name of it, but it was along the same line. He's also not a denier. And Ed, can we get it? Can we stop saying denier, you know, Holocaust denier? That's something that happened in the past. We are talking about something that could potentially happen in the future. <laughs> it's a totally different basis. Well, right? I, I think, yes, I, I think, it, it, yes, I think that's what most of them mean by it. Now, what we what I have heard is that people are denying that the climate is and this is where they get squirrely changing slash and or the temperature is rising. I see. I And I, I'm convinced that the, that the that the temperature is increasing. Um, I'm not 100 percent convinced that it's caused by humans, although I think we have some influence over it. So that's the second question. Then third question that really needs to be asked is, well, can we do anything about it? And I think the answer is, is yeah, we can. And then the last question, of course, is should we? 
And I think the answer is yes, but the should we is, are, are not things that are being proposed by the Green New Deal. Let's just put it that way. Right, the, right. The, you know, I think we, we, I, we, we, I think we talked about this last week on our bonus episode that GM, of course, came out and said that they're going to be all electric cars by 2035. Big F BFD <laughs> 15 years. And, and of course the technology is already shifting in that direction. So thanks GM, you know, but, 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 but that's not going to change the fact that we're going to need that power power to, to, to power the batteries. And what's the source of that going to be? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's another thing Tammy talks about is this whole energy independence, and he really goes after the right for this, you know, that we need to be energy independent and blah, blah, blah. He goes, yeah, so great. You want to make us compete with company, uh, you know, countries like Iran and Venezuela uh, <laughs> in oil production. You, you know, his basic point is, look, if they can do it cheaper than we can, knock it off, right? Because you're right. not playing to your comparative advantage. But, right. Uh, yeah. His, uh, his other big point here, which I think is important, is that we've got to come up with some kind of middle ground. We can't be forced to choose between economic growth, lifting people out of, uh, out of, pom- uh, out of poverty and doing something about the client. But that, that, that cannot be a choice that we were forced to make. That's an insane choice. It is because if you don't have wealth, you can't solve these problems. I mean, right. you know, even John Kerry admitted, hey, we could stop admissions tomorrow and it wouldn't put a dent in this issue. Nope. Right. Because it's China and in India, mm-hmm. and if you want those countries to get better with their environments, they've got to get richer, period. Yep. They have to. Yep. All right. Well, we're up against our first break. want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending one email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can look up show notes as well as previews to our upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
You're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the best books of 2020. And Ed, uh, keeping with my first list of authors that we interviewed, Peter Robinson being the first two books, um, number three on that list is Evasive Entrepreneurs by Adam Thier, mm. which is episode 294. And that was just great. Mm-hmm. That was just a fantastic book. Um, I think it was Matt Ridley who wrote From the Perennial Gales of Creative Destruction to the Gentle Breezes of Rent Seeking. <laughs> 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 I love that. Um, and speaking of Matt Ridley, that is my fourth book, number four book, How Innovation Works and Why mm-hmm. It Flourishes and Freedom. And I tell you, he's got the greatest uh, definition of innovation that I've ever read. They are enhanced forms of improbability. Say that again. Enhanced, enhanced forms, forms of improbability. Of improbability. Now, he, he, I mean, he just documents all of these different innovations from, you know, wheeled suitcases to the search engine, computers, coffee, it just go, goes on and on. Um, and he says not, not one of them was predicted. So, which brings to a, a quick, interesting question. I don't want to get too far afield here because otherwise we'll never get to our, our books. But this is a, there's, there's a lot of talk these days about innovation in, inside businesses. In fact, I was asked to be on the innovation team inside Sage where we're going to start to plan innovation run. <laughs> and, this, okay. and, 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 and I, 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 they, I, I kind of threw up an objection and said, listen, I don't, I don't think we can plan innovation. Isn't that the point? I mean, it comes as a surprise to us. This is the creativity. And their argument back was as well, that's probably true. You can't plan innovation per se, but you can create a culture where it is enhanced or where, 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 where it's allowed, where, where it, it uh, is allowed to flourish. Right. And right. so you would tend to agree with that, right? That, 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 that's. Yeah. But you gotta, you gotta keep going, right? It means you're going to give people 20% time. It means you're going to give them permission to fail mm-hmm. and, and not wail on them when they blow it, you know, and have big failures like uh, Google does and other, this is something that Bob Iger talked about in his uh, book on Disney his time CEO of Disney. He said, look, you've got to, if you want a culture of innovation. People have to be allowed to fail mm-hmm. big time. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly true. A couple, just a couple of other things. I mean, the the Ridley book is wonderful. He does not believe in IP law. Ed. He, he doesn't think it's needed. Now, he does say maybe for drugs, but he's not even sure there. He said, because look, Silicon Valley was uh, too busy, pat, you know, innovating to patent anything <laughs> in its early days. And um, he he talks about he doesn't think it's even needed for drugs because he says the evidence for it's weak. And he also cites um, the, uh, I love this, the number of people predicting the death of Moore's law doubles every two years. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Lee of Microsoft Research said that. Uh, (laughs) And then, of course, he quotes, and I love, this is one of my favorite uh, physics quotes from Charles Towns, the Nobel Prize winner in uh, 64, who was, you know, invented the laser. Uh, He said, he's quoting an old cartoon showing a beaver, and a rabbit looking up at the Hoover Dam. And the beaver says, no, I didn't build it myself. 
but it's based on an idea of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen that cartoon. It's excellent. It, it is. It is. Yeah. Love that. So Matt Ridley's book, How Innovation Works, a rollicking read, just terrific, totally inspiring. All right. Well, my number four is is the antithesis of that. Not a rollicking read at all, but extraordinarily interesting. And it's a, a book that I had come across a long time ago, had the opportunity, and I rediscovered it in uh, in the middle of the pandemic, picked it up, went through it. And now, bizarrely, I can't find the actual book. I must have lent it to somebody, and I can't remember. Oh, it's so, gone forever once you, once I know. you lend it, Either right? that or it's, a, yeah. it's possibly around the house. But it, but it, but it, but there is a new edition out. And this is, a, this is truly one of those books that would be absolutely impossible, I think, to read on a Kindle. It is, it is a book by Burton H. Throckmorton. So you're like, yeah, and it is called Gospel Parallels. It is a comparison of what are called the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because John is not a Synoptic Gospel, and it's kind of its own separate thing. And what this does is it gives you three separate columns for each of those Gospels and lays out each of the stories in complete parallel, and you can compare what each of them said some some of it like oftentimes mark was the first gospel that was written and so much of that was copied in into matthew almost word for word but then matthew would throw his own his own stuff in there and the same thing with luke now one of the things that that becomes abundantly clear and they're they're, the gospels are laid out so they're chronologically happen in order from a timing standpoint and one of the couple of things that you notice is that Mark's gospel doesn't doesn't contain any narrative of the the childhood of Jesus at all. It starts with his ministry. So there's not no mention whatsoever of the birth of Christ, absolutely zero. And then the other side that's interesting is that Luke and Matthew both both do talk about this. But I don't know if you're aware of this, but the the, the gospel of of Luke is where the shepherds are. So the shepherds are called, you know, Gloria and Excelsis Deo and the, the shepherds come in, but there's no Kings in Luke's gospel. Mm. In, in the story in Matthew's uh, story, there's no shepherds, but there are Kings. And it's only by putting these two stories together that we have like the Christmas crash. It wouldn't, it wouldn't exist otherwise. It's completely inaccurate to say that one of the gospels, if you read them through, would have the entire Christmas crash in it. No less the little drummer boy. But anyway, so this book, this, this book, the, the gospel parallels is just really a fascinating look at those three three stories in parallel. And then of course it would it's got some great reference material to all of the other connection points to the old testament and things like that so it's really really just a a super great read burton h throckmorton gospel parallels when was it written ed or published the first original publication date on it is 1949 but the 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 current hardcover that has the the new revised standard edition which is the the bible that's more in use today is is 1992 Hmm. okay and why wouldn't you want to read it on on an ebook because you, you, I don't think. I, well, I'd have to look. I did. I, I the, the the one that I have is very old. It's actually my dad's, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's. I just can't see how you would be able to lay the book out 
on a mm. Kindle to see the three side by side and have the impact. It's a it's a it's a wide format book. Mm. Okay. Yep. 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 Books with a lot of pictures don't do well. Well, and the, the, this or, one has zero pictures, but it's it's the way that the text is laid out and the yeah, way that you yeah. want to actually see the line for line comparison. So anyway, yeah. so there you go. There's there's the number number four. Yeah, sometimes there's no substitute for the real book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, my number three, uh, and I might have talked about this on some other show, but it it, it was Countdown, 1945. The Extraordinary Story of the 116 Days That Changed the World by Chris Wallace, published last year. And it was on the dropping of the bomb, mm-hmm. the Manhattan Project, you know, uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico, Wendover, Utah, where the flight crews were preparing, you know, the Nola Gay and the crews that dropped the bomb and, you know, the little bomb, the little boy bomb, and the fat man bomb and and the the decisions leading up to that. Uh, Harry Truman, you know, MacArthur was against dropping the bomb. Eisenhower was against dropping the bomb. Truman even had another plan in place to attack Japan, 767,000 American troops, um, you know, had, we're going to start a war, but he figured that, um, you know, he, he, he threw out a great stat. He says there were almost half as great the the casualties in the Pacific were almost half as great as during the previous three years of war with not a single Japanese unit surrendering. So that's what led Truman to believe that these guys weren't going to surrender. They were going to fight it to the last man. And that's why he mm-hmm. decided to do it. And of course he takes inside the Enola Gay, you know, Colonel Paul Tibbets, the plane named after his mother dropping the bomb, the second bomb, which was an alternative target. Um, Nagasaki, they, that was not the original target, but the, original target had the uh, you know cloud cover over it so they they went on to the alter- alternate target um he's got a postscript in there where he if he, he profiles he profiles a bunch of people in the book and he if they were still alive he talked to them and um nobody really um had any misgivings about dropping the bomb uh truman never thought that you know he made the wrong decision um so, and it's just a great book because he takes you literally through those 116 days. That's how the book is structured. He counts down to the the the, the dropping of the bomb, and it's just a, it's just a fantastic read. Uh, I I love journalists that do history because mm-hmm. they take out all the extraneous facts, you know, and just kind of give you a great overview, and they do it in a way that's a, a great story, and they try and bring you right there. Um, I'm not saying it's great history from a scholarly perspective, but it was a fantastic read. Well, I can do my number three very quickly because we did have this person on as a guest uh, of the show. And and we talked an awful lot about this particular book, so we don't have to spend too much time on it here. And that is uh, uh, Deidre McCloskey's book, Why Liberalism Works. Um, just, just had to get it in there. So good. So well-written. Um, so really concise for her. (laughs) Um, and I, I just, just, we'll just cap it off by a reminder of this, this great quote that she says, um, chances are almost 100% that you act like a libertarian. You don't hit other people when their behavior displeases you. You don't take their stuff. You don't, lie to them to try to trick them to give you to let into let them them take your stuff knowingly give them directions that cause them to drive off a bridge congratulations you're a civilized person you've internalized the basic principles of liberalism (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) 
So, and, and if I remember right, that book is kind of a collection of different essays and things that she wrote, yes. but she does put an arc around it and, and make it flow. Well, that, yes. that is terrific. Correct. Book. And what I really, what I really liked about that is, is she really goes into the silver law uh, because that that's something that I continue to ponder. You know, the go, the golden rule, uh, be, do unto others. But the the silver uh, silver being the inverse of that. Do not do unto others as you would not want them to do unto you. Right. It's almost more powerful if you can begin to wrap your brain around it. Right. It's a right. little bit harder because of the double negative. Right. But it's I think a, a more powerful phrasing of it. So there you go. So now we're we're caught up with our uh, down to number three. Yeah, the uh, pl- plat- they say the platinum rule on top of the golden rule is do unto other don't do unto others as as you would want them to do unto you because they may have different preferences. But yeah, that's more yeah. of an economist's rephrasing of it. Sure. Yep. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, I read. I think I read two or three books by her last year, and that might have been one of them. That was published yeah. last year, wasn't it? It was. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, the one that we talked with our Cardin about. Our Cardin about. Mm-hmm. And then there was another one, Ed, that came out uh, called the Entrep- the Myth of the Entrepreneurial State, which was basically against uh, industrial policy. All three were phenomenal. Didn't make my list, but all th- anything by her is <laughs> phenomenal. And <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely worth reading. So, uh, well, all right. Well, geez, this is flying by. We're up against our next break. And, folks, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out on Patreon so you can subscribe and, and uh, not have to listen to Greg Kite. And that is by going to patreon.com slash tsoe. And that is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More Minds meld at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now, a word from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are doing our annual Best Books of the previous year here on Soul of Enterprise today. And Ron, I have, a, I'll call this a little bit of a surprise for my number two book of okay. 2020. And I read, read it very late in 2020. But I also read it in 1983. Hmm. Uh, and curiously, for the same reason that um, um, my son was reading it, I read it in 1983 as uh, in high school. And it is F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic, The Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby. Yep. So I'm going to, you know, cheat and call the reread okay um, on on this. Oh, this absolutely. is this is an amazing book. <laughs> this is really an amazing book. And what it, coming to find out after the fact that he was died almost penniless, it didn't be it didn't take on its deep meaning until long after he passed away, mostly because of World War II, people reading reading it during World War II and coming back and and really loving the book and still sells, I don't know, hundred, hundreds of thousands of copies a year right now, mostly probably to high school students, but that's beside the point. But the, the, the language in here is it, it's 100 years ago that this was written, r- roughly 19, 1920, 1921, when he was really reading. It didn't come out until 1924, but for, the, for mo- most of it was written in the early 20s. But you would think that language from 100 years ago, we would, we would start to lose a little bit. But this, this doesn't. I don't think this loses any of its freshness. And I'm just here's a couple of samples from it they wanted to share. And this is, this is now Nick Carraway, who's the... The, the protagonist uh, narrator of this talking about Gatsby. And he said, he smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that as you may come across four or five times in a life, it faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated you with an irresistible pre- prejudice in your favor it understood you so as just so far that you wanted to be understood and believed you just just like you would want to be believed. And it assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hoped to convey. Hmm. Just a, a wonderful, a wonderful way to 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 craft a, a, a thought about a smile and we've met people like that, right? Have you, you've met people sure. that looked at you and smiled at you or some kind of a face. You said, this person gets me and I don't, <laughs> right. <laughs> and you don't have to take it any further. And this is where, where Gatsby was. And there's just, 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 and there's some laugh out, fun, laugh out loud, funny moments. This Jordan Baker, who's the tennis pro uh, is complaining at, at one point she says, um, and I like large parties. They're so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. <laughs> Which is well, true, right? True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I was thinking about this in the context of not going to conferences. You know, we we would we would go to, you go to conferences, and you when you when you went to a conference that was a lot of people, you could have intimate conversations with a 
one or two or three people you you know gather around a small sure. cocktail table so the larger the gathering the more likely you are to have an intimate conversation yeah yeah uh-huh. <laughs> it was just some fantastic stuff anyway so the 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 great gatsby leave it out there uh, for for those of you uh, to 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 pick it up again a well well worth it it's actually a very quick read it's really mm. it does not take you that long. You probably remember laboring over it in high school. High school, but do not fret about it. It you can you can polish it off in a, in several hours. I would say it's a it's a four or five hour read. Wasn't it panned, Ed, when it first yes. came out? I mean, critically panned. Critically panned. A couple of couple of the critics. So a couple did like it, but the you know the ones that mattered at the time, New York Times uh, right. said it wasn't his best work. He had written another one. I forget the with the name of it. The crack up, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, that that uh, that was really celebrated, and this was his second or third book, and they were anticipating this to be even better. And in their view, it fell flat. Of course, what a, what do experts know? Because now it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly celebrated. Yeah, awesome. You know, for some reason, NPR Planet Money has done a reading of The Great Gatsby. It's like a four-hour show. Mm. Um, and I guess they read the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's just, I mean, just little stuff. Like, uh, she, he says at one point, I wasn't actually in love, but I sort of felt a tender curiosity. No, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> well, didn't, uh, didn't the movie come out on that? Yes. Well, there was, and, 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 and I watched that with, uh, with, with Sean as well with, with um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Right, right, DiCaprio. That's was right. a which is a which is a great version because they updated it from a, the musical sense, and there's a little hip hop and a lot lot more exciting. Uh, it's a uh, Baz Luhrmann uh, movie, where so there's lots and lots of cuts and fast action and and very very quick. Uh, the, the the classic version that was done in the '70s, Robert Redford was in it, uh, Mia Farrow uh, and Sam Watterson. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he always say sport? He calls people sport old, sport. Or, old sport. Old sport. Old sport. Old sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, on my cheat list and somebody that we interviewed, Dr. Azra Raza, episode 289, Greg, um, The First Cell. Just mm. a super powerful book. In fact, it could have been my number one book. I really struggled with the number one on this list. But that, that is just way up there. If you haven't read the first cell based on our interview, if that didn't tempt you, nothing will. No, I agree. Um, Terrific uh, book. Uh, the second book, Ed, on my normal list is, and, and <laughs> this is kind of a weird book to read, but I loved it. Uh, it's called Empires of the Sky, Zeppelin's Airplanes and Two Men's Epic Duel to Rule the World. You know, at one point there was a big debate between lighter than air and heavier than air and which one sure. was dominate. And, you know, we all talk about the Wright brothers first flight in 1903, right? Well, what's little less known is count von Zeppelin on July 2nd, 1900. He flew three and a half miles reaching 1300 feet and lasting 18 minutes, which was a lot longer than uh, the 12 seconds and 124 feet that the Wright brothers did. Um, and Zeppelins were a big deal. And everybody thought this guy was nuts. He, they called him the crazy count. And, um, but they, he flew uh, up to World War I when they started to use the Zeppelins to bomb, especially Great Britain. But mm. up until before then, they flew passengers. They, they'd bring you up for a two, three-hour flight, Fogwa, 
you know, great wines. It was really expensive. I mean, it was like a year salary or something on average. Um, but he flew 48, 49,000 passengers, 1.2 million miles uh, for 21,000 hours without a single fatality. And all of these were filled with hydrogen. <laughs> um, but it's just, and, and then of course the other, the other protagonist in the, in the story is Juan Tripp, who of course was the founder of Pan American Airlines, which dominated the skies and the routes. I mean, South America, this guy was amazing. And um, it was just a great book. Now the book leans more towards the Zeppelin history than the airplane history, but there's enough airplane history to make it really interesting to, to see how this, uh, this race turned out. Um, and of course the airplane won, but um, it was just really interesting. It, it, it's little known, but this Dr. Hugo Eckner, who, who, rose to be chief of the zeppelin company and he flew around the world in the graf zeppelin in the 20s he had two he had two new york ticker tape parades in his honor got to meet uh two presidents i think hoover and coolidge if i remember right um and it was just an amazing guy it, they they said if he would have ran for chancellor he would he would have beat adolf hitler at one point he was the most famous person in the world Wow. After he flew around the world and the you know, there was, they called it Zeppelin mania. I mean, there were board mm-hmm. games and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And he hated the Nazis and he hated Adolf Hitler. And one of the things I learned from this book was he actually met Hitler once at some event they were at and he couldn't stand the Nazis. Uh, he said, Nazism brings to the surface all the evil qualities of human character. He denied Hitler the right to use his airship hangar. <laughs> which are huge things that have their own weather basically. Cause they're so darn big. I don't know if you've ever been in one of these things, but they're massive. Mm-hmm. And um, he hated the Nazi emblem on the tail of the Hindenburg and, you know, but they paid for it. Right. So right. what right. are you going to do? Right. You talk about owning the means of production or directing it. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to do it this way or we're not going to fund this thing. So it's a fantastic book and it's written by this guy, Alexander Rose, who I didn't know. Uh, he's a journalist, I believe, but just a phenomenal writer. This is a really, really well done book. I was blown away by how thoroughly researched it was. And I learned many things that I didn't know. Uh, and I've read a lot on this topic and it was just a great book. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, getting to that, I heard a great quote about, about that. I forget who said it, uh, the d- difference between fa- fascism, Nazism and socialism in, in terms of means of production versus resources of production. Uh, why, why, why own the farm when you can own the farmer? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deirdre McClowski in her book against industrial policy says there's no difference mm-hmm. between owning the means of production or getting to direct the results of that means of production because you're quibbling over semantics at that point. Right. It's the same thing. You know, they can they can do with you what they want. So um, thoroughly enjoyed that book, though. All right. Well, good stuff. And yes, we're up against our last break. Want to remind you that you can contact us by the email, which is asktsoe at verisage.com. Don't forget our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where we have full shows without commercial introduction, as well as our bonus episodes, which are sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? Check them out at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're talking about the best books we read last year and ed before we uh, learn your number one pick i want to get uh, i want to read two uh, apple podcast reviews that we got the first comes from Steve Brown, friend of Verisage, gave us a five-star review called it inspirational. He said, after recently sustaining a back injury, I have taken up walking and this podcast is my constant partner. Ron and Ed have a great rapport between themselves and their guests. They have brilliant guests who share openly about matters that should inspire any business leader that desires their business to be more than it currently is. The journey to find the soul of enterprise is one I thoroughly recommend you follow. Thank you so much, Steve. That's yeah, that's a great review. It is. And another one came in on January 19th from Arlie K. She, uh, in the title, she put soul good exclamation point, but for the S in soul, she's got the dollar sign like in our logo. <laughs> and she says, it's clear that Ron and Ed put extraordinary effort in covering salient topics and finding expert guests in their respective fields grateful for the insightful content here. Arlie, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And folks, I'd like to remind you, go out to Apple Podcasts, give us a review. We will read it on the air, good, bad, or ugly. And Ed, what is your number one pick for the year? Our number one pick, not a big surprise. I even hinted at it at the end of the last week's episode, our interview with Virginia Postrel. And it is her book, The Fabric of Civilizations, How Textiles Made the, wo- the World. As I said in the opening with her, I was became really obsessed with this book around Thanksgiving and just l- absolutely loved it. I want to talk a little bit about something we did not get a chance to talk about with her. And that is the last chapter where she is talking about the future of textiles. Mm-hmm. And 
and you wouldn't you would think the future of textiles what and and this was just unbelievable a couple of the things that have have come up recently and you know we don't even appreciate this another reason why we have this textile amnesia as she called it just the a dry fit shirt the 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 amazing technology that is a dry fit shirt, which my son will not wear anything but. By the mm-hmm. way, <laughs> if mm-hmm. it's not a dry fit shirt, he's not wearing it. And the ability of to, to because before that, you know, the the, the artificial shirts, the plastic, the, they would keep, they would make you hot, mm-hmm. right? They they've now are developing fabrics that are going to be the feel you'll feel in summer like you're naked. That's how good they are at wicking away the the uh, the heat from you. It will be almost as if you are not wearing anything at all whatsoever. And it's just amazing what they're doing. One of the things that she talks about, and she doesn't mention it by name, but I think she's talking a little bit about something we talked a number of years ago about graphene as a coating for fabrics. Now, she says, you're probably not going to want to do this. But in theory, they can create a fabric out of something that you would be able to put on. It would be completely resistant to any anything uh, that would soak into it, including any kind of smell, where you would never have to change your clothes because the, it, it would be antibacterial, anti-infection, prevent you from getting infection, but at the same time be completely comfortable and wearable and not stretch. So... The, the future of textiles is something that is as in, as incredible as the past was. We Textiles have a great future to them as well. And being able to put batteries in, mm-hmm. in the fabric so you could put your iPhone in your pocket and it would charge your speakers and microphones. It, it was kind of what Dr. Raza talked about with um, you know, health monitors of your body. It could just monitor you all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and and locate that first cell possibly. That's right. That's uh, right. And and I know she did a tour of MIT and a couple of other places, didn't she? At the end of that book, and yep. talked yeah. about that. That also blew my mind too. Yeah. The supercapacitors that she mentions don't hold as much bat much power as batteries, but they charge much more quickly. They don't wear out. And an important consideration for textiles: don't spontaneously catch fire. fire. <laughs> spontaneously combust <laughs> just uh, yeah. it's gonna be amazing like, this whole internet of things is just gonna be unbelievable when we start you know putting sensors and things and batteries and things it just it's amazing mm-hmm. yeah and and it, it all started with with the the introduction to to nylons which you did talk to her a little bit about the the right. the, the nylons but we've taken it so much further than that as it's, it really is uh gonna gonna be a, a cool future with regard and, a cool future and, and that whole nylon thing her book reminded me of just what a craze that set off I mean, she's got a picture in the book of all the women lined up at one of the department stores right oh it's it, yeah it, yeah it, it's just, just packed mm-hmm. it was like woodstock <laughs> <laughs> amazing all right ed on my cheat list I That's have, right. Uh, number one has got to be Humanocracy by Gary Hamill. And of course, we interviewed Gary, which is why he's on my cheat list, uh, episode 313. And this book just, I think, is the most powerful business book I've read since I don't know when, since probably a Drucker book or a Clayton Christensen book. 
I, I think he's on to something. I think it's going to be a heck of a long time before organizations do it, but we're starting to see some movement. And I think Netflix would be uh, exhibit, you know, A, along with the company C profiles in humanocracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that book is fantastic. We should probably read it again in 2021. Yeah, yeah, and talk about it more. Uh, my number one book is, and and I should have read this decades earlier. It's a classic in conservative circles. Is Witness by Whitaker Chambers? Oh my Mother's God, Whitaker Chambers. Fifty two. Yep, I'm <laughs> I'm going to go there. Uh, Ronald Reagan <laughs> awarded him a Presidential Medal of Freedom posthumously in 1984 because I believe he died in 61. He was a Communist Party member in 1925. He joined. He became a Soviet spy in 32, between 32 and 38. He defected from the underground in 38. Eddie worked for Time Magazine as an editor from 39 to 48. You know, Henry Luce and, and that group, an incredible editor. He edited all sorts of different sections of the magazine. Um, and then, of course, he testified against uh, Alger Hiss for perjury, uh, which uh, threw him in jail. Um, not for very long, though come to find out. Um, but that's why, and you know, that's where he met Nixon and the un-American, you know, house and all of that. Um, but you have to read this book in the context of the time that it came out. You know, this is the height of the cold war, right? Sputnik, uh, you know, a few years later after it came out, uh, and all of that. And he, if you ever wanted to understand how somebody can be sucked into socialism, communism, and think that what they're what's going on in Russia is uh, you know the future. This is the book to understand it. I I now completely understand why this was is a classic. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it it deserves to be read no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. And one of the things that blew my mind about this book is in the for in the opening, he's got a letter to his children, and it is one of the most profound and deep philosophical things I've ever read. And he also tells a story later in the book about after his daughter was born, he's watching her eat in a high chair and she's very little and he's looking at her ear and he's just captivated by the, you know, this ear that's just its design and its functionality. Mm-hmm. And he was just, you know, he's that's that was the first chink in the armor from his move away from communism because he said, this was not random chance. This this has got a designer behind it, right? I'll just leave it there. Uh, but as, as as our rabbi likes to say, Ed, and I just think this is a great line, you know how when you're in college, you lay down in the dorm and you look up at the stars and you all contemplate why we're here and you ask yourself the big questions. Rabbi Lappin says, if you want to marvel at the universe, don't use a telescope, use a microscope. Hmm. And I think that's a so brilliant true. point. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, wrap up another year of best books, Ron. Good stuff. Always fun to do this episode. Yeah, totally agree. What do we have on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we are back to our guests. We have John Rillo, author of The Automatic Customer. Right on. More subscription. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage. 
transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will link all of the books that we talked about, uh, including uh, both of my list. And uh, for more information, check us out. And if you want to contact Ed or me, send an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Talk to you next week.